The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. I want to talk about uh, next week. We're really uh, excited about starting a new series, a new teaching series through the book of Ephesians. Uh, really looking forward to that. If you're looking for a new book of the Bible to, to read and to work through in the coming year, uh, let me recommend Ephesians. Come along with us. Um, you can study this. You can read it. Read it every week. Read, uh, read through it. Read it in your, um, your quiet times, um, in your studies, and just uh, meditate with us as we will we'll journey through that book together slowly and, and just mine the, the great nuggets of God's blessing that he has for us. So that all begins next week. Uh, so for this week, we're going to be spending some time in James chapter 4. If you have your Bible, uh, you can go to James chapter 4. And uh, we'll be reading in verse 13 through 17. This is God's word. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Uh, just a brief passage for us this morning, but incredibly practical. This passage is about determination. It's about planning. It's about productivity and setting priorities and making goals. It's about understanding our limitations and trusting in God for the future. What a great passage as we are on the eve of, new, of a new year where many of us are looking forward and saying, here's what I want to do different in the coming year. Here's what I want to change. Here's where I want to grow. Here's, here are my regrets from the previous year. And we're setting goals. We're making plans. And it's good for us to seek God's wisdom as we do that because there's a right way to do it and there is an evil way uh, to do it, as God's Word tells us. Uh, there was a saying growing up that my parents said all the time, and I remember it to this day, and even I utter it from time to time uh, because of hearing it so much. And that was the phrase, Lord willing. I feel like my parents tagged it on to the end of every statement, every intention, every determination that they had. They would always end it with, Lord willing. It's used to ex express a a desire to, for something to happen, but always open-handed, always knowing that their plans that they made were, were written in pencil and that God could change it at any moment. And so they, they, they desired to do things, but uh, they were trusting in God. Um, for instance, you might hear the statement, this year we will, have, we will be able to pay off our car, Lord willing. Things can change. We desire to pay it off, uh, but but anything can happen. It's God's timing and not ours. I really felt it was overused so much in our home for sure. Mom, what are we having for dinner? We're going to have spaghetti and meatballs, Lord willing. It's like, well, well are you going to make it? Or like, like, if you make it, we'll have it. And so, you know, so why, what is this all about? So much was open-handed and, and it was used in a, in a weird way and even became frustrating. Uh, so much was up to God's provision. It's like, well, well if you just actually have a plan uh, and do it, then why do, you, why do you need to say, Lord willing? Why can't you say you're going to do it? Make a plan at any cost and make sure that you reach your goal. Why can't you just do it? And you see, that became the slogan of my generation. 
You know, the, the generation of the slogan of Lord willing gave way to the slogan of just do it, right? So one of the, one of the, actually the finest and probably the most successful uh, marketing slogan of all time is Nike's just do it. And that came out in my generation. It came out when I was a young boy, 1988, just do it. And it is, and has stood the test of time and still being used and the greatest marketing slogan of all time. And between Yoda in 1980 saying, do or do not, there is no try, and, and Nike coming out a few years later with, with just do it, a generation of people have been formed to take the outcome of their lives in their own hands. And if you want something to happen, then make it happen. You determine it to happen, you make the plan, you put in the expense, and it will happen. This is true for a lot of us. I'm speaking to so many of you today. You know, the, the Lord willing generation gave way to the just do it generation. I'm afraid that has given way to a new generation, which is, their slogan is, I can't, I'm too busy. Lord willing, if God provides, no, just do it. Okay, I'll do it. And now I'm exhausted. I've done it all. I've tried so much. I've, I've extended myself. I have worked so hard. I have been all things to all people. And now I'm just spent and so the slogan of my life now is, I can't, I'm too busy. I don't know if that's how you feel today. We need a break. Maybe in the new year, maybe in the new year you will get a break, Lord willing. <laughs> and that's why we need to open our ears to a passage like this. It's why we need to open our hearts. It's why we need to hear from God's wisdom. Um, in James chapter 4, which, which neither frees us from personal responsibility, as you will see, nor does it put a burden of our, the future right on our shoulders. James 4 does not say, just relax, God's got it in control, don't make any plans. Nor does it say, you better work hard, or who else is going to take care of your life? It's all up to you. Both of those are evil. Both of those are sin, as James tells us. James, the half-brother of Jesus, presents the most practical and mundane situation that we can think of, the most daily thing, the thing that we say every single day, multiple times a day. We make plans, we set goals, we put things on our calendar. What is so ridiculous about that? What is so sinful about it? We do it every day. It's called planning. This passage is not against planning, it's not against setting goals, but there's a wickedness in our planning that you and I commit every single day. And this is what James is telling us about. It's an evil that is so natural to us, so habitual, that we don't even know that we're doing it. What is that evil? What does it look like? It varies from person to person and opportunity and to opportunity, but the evil finds its foundation in the assumption that the shape and outcome of your day and week and life and legacy is all up to your control. It all is about you and rides on you. The evil lies in going about our lives as if God has nothing to do with it. As if God is, an, is, a, is a bystander just looking in our life, telling us what to do, saying, you better do a good job, you better work hard, you better not sin, you better not disobey, you better keep growing or else. And without being honest to who we are or who he is, this is the great evil of making plans as if God has nothing to do with it. It's a, the evil is in forgetting God every day. 
as we chart our life and pave our path. All of our planning and goal setting and coming and going and, and do anything we do must be done in remembering who God is and even remembering who we are. You know, to say, like, dinner party at your house tomorrow night, I'll be there. Now, who do you think you are? <laughs> In control of your life. Look at you, big boy, big girl, making plans and saying, I will be there tomorrow night. How do you know? You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what the Lord will bring into your life. You don't know what will happen. Acting like the king of the universe, saying, if I want to be somewhere, I'll be somewhere. If I want to do something, I will do it. As if we are in charge of our every day. You don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. What is your life, James asks. He asks, what is your life? So we want to consider how to live our lives without forgetting God. He says, why don't you think about first who you are? What is your life, James asks. We are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. King David says, we are dust. These terms are not meant to belittle us. They're not meant to demean us or, or the sense of devaluing our lives. James is not reprimanding us in the sense of saying, hey, you're nothing. You think that you're important, but you're not. He's not saying that. For our spirits are alive. Our spirits are alive by the righteousness of Christ, and our lives have infinite value, infinite value that have been purchased by the blood of Christ. We are important. We are valuable. We are God's cherished creation. But these images are not meant to just demean us or belittle us. These images are meant to communicate something. In both of these images, rightfully acknowledges that we are an embodied creature, that we are, there are creatures uh, locked in a, in a finite space and a, and a finite person and a finite bag of bones, I guess. Our spirit resides finitely in, in who we are. We are creatures with limits. We occupy a space and time. We are extremely limited. That is what James is wanting us to say, that we are like a mist that is here, that is just like a puff of smoke that dissipates into the air and is there in a moment and then gone the next and we don't know where it went. We, are, we have limits. We are finite. We are fragile. God created us out of dust and one day he will command us all to return to dust. God is God and we are dust. We are a mist. We are a vapor. Dust and mist are are disconnected particles with no life originating within themselves, no action apart from what moves us, no power in our own ability. At no point in our lives in this age are we very far from reverting back to dust from which we came. And this isn't to say, it's, this isn't like the phrase of God saying, I brought you into this world, I can take you out of it, right? Which is very true. But he's saying, from dust you came and to dust you will return. You are temporary, you know, the trouble with being able-bodied and strong and healthy is that you and I begin to believe that we are somehow something other than dust and mist into which God has temporarily breathed His life. As he created us. He gives us the breath of life, and all of us have life, and all of us have, have, have life in our being because God has breathed life, in, life into us. And the moment He takes that away, then we will go back to dust. We will be like a mist. I had this reoccurring nightmare, uh, this dream that I've had 
uh, and, and I bet you've had it too, where in this dream, you couldn't fly. And you just keep running and running, but you're not going anywhere. And you just, you're locked down to the earth. And it's weird because in this dream, it was very normal to fly. Everyone was mobile and everyone could do whatever they want. They could float from here or there, but not me. My feet were like, like iron anchors to the ground. And no matter how fast I moved or how high I tried to jump, I was stuck. I could not fly. And in this dream, the nightmare was that I was just merely human. And somehow that is strange because I think that well, it made perfect sense that in this dream I could, be, I could do anything I wanted. I could fly. I could be superhuman, a super creature. And the worst part about the dream is that I was just, I was just a human. I was just a mortal. God may say to you or to me in his timing, return to dust, O child of Adam. And at that moment when he says it, we will return to dust. And when that happens, well within a generation and certainly less than 100 years you will be forgotten. Have a happy new year, everyone. Let's pray. <laughs> no, we have, more. we have more to say. But it's important to know who we are. It is important to know that we are creatures, embodied creatures with incredible limits. How strange. How strange it is, James is saying, when he says, what is your life? He is saying, isn't this strange? Let's think together. Isn't it strange to think so proudly about ourselves? That, that, that our lives are really in our control. How strange is that when we are creatures that are here for a moment and gone the next? When we are so fragile, when we are so limited. Some of you are well aware of your limits. I mentioned a moment ago that it's temptation when you're able-bodied and, and healthy and strong to believe that your time is here and then gone but maybe some of you are the opposite. Maybe you know your limits very well. You're well aware of your own bodies as you age. You're well aware of your battle with chronic sickness. You know your body will never work the way that it was supposed to work. You feel it every day in your bones, in your heart, in your mind, with your attitudes, and it scares you. And you are well aware that you are, are limited, that you're fragile, that you're temporary. It's also true of our minds as we forget and our minds become distracted and confused and we have trouble holding attention to things and we forget things often, increasingly so. And it's scary and it's troubling. And I want to say that this is not a bad thing. We feel it's a bad thing, but it's not a bad thing to know that we're a mist, to know that we are dust and that we will return to that one day. It's a realistic truth and the sooner that we can understand and acknowledge who we are, that we are creatures that God has created, that we are embodied creatures in a finite time, that we, were, that we are never, that life will never be more than just a few brought together clumps in which God has breathed life, and we hold life in perspective, then we can actually truly to know who we are and pursue God for who He is and enjoy the life that He has given to us. It's okay that we have limits. It's okay that we're breaking it's okay that we are aging because, because God is under no illusions of who we are. He is not confused. He does not say, now, come on, I thought I created you for something else. I thought I created you to be strong and able-bodied and, and healthy and, and put together and to be all things for all people. He knows what he got. 
God knows what he purchased when he purchased us by his blood on the cross, and he is not disappointed. For Psalms 103 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God is not disappointed when you fail. God is not disappointed when you hurt. God is not disappointed when you are merely human. God knows that what we have to offer Him is very imperfect, temporary, and fragile. When you live your life and you set a goal and you don't reach that goal and you feel horrible about yourself and you're assured that God feels horrible about you too, you're wrong. God knows who you are. He knows that you're imperfect. He knows the best that you have to offer falls way short of what He, what he, can, what he can do. He knows who you are. To forget who you are in our limits, in our daily lives, is, is evil because it's arrogant. As James says, it's arrogant because it functions as a salvation by works and not by grace. Do you realize this? That when we make plans and then when we feel horrible, when we don't succeed in our plans, when we go about our life saying, I should be the person that can succeed at everything, it is saying, God, I am saved by works. I'm saved by my, by my record. I'm saved by my character. I'm saved by my ability to accomplish all that I set out to be. So we're basically saying, I should be God. I should be all-powerful and all-knowing. I should be all places at all times. We want to be like God. We commit the same sins that Satan committed at the fall of the angels, the angelic hosts. They wanted to be God. The foundation of our busyness, our forgetting God and our planning and thinking that we can do anything, is a belief that we are not dust, is a belief that we are somehow greater than that. But we are not divine. We're not all-powerful. We cannot be all things to all people, and we do get tired. Are you tired? Maybe you're tired. Are you going into the new year with regret? Maybe you're going into the new year with regret. Maybe you're going into the new year with a sense of failure, and you wish to be a better person, and you are going to set some new goals and some new habits and some new ambitions. You're going to invest in, in new uh, attitudes and things that surrounding yourself by people and things and habits that help change those things. Maybe you're going into the new year uh, desiring not to waste time as you wasted so much of 2017. And if you're kicking yourself all the time, it looks really humble to other people. It looks like, well, that person really is a humble person. They don't struggle with pride. But the root of that aspiration is to be all-powerful. In a weird way, it is pride. It's thinking so much of yourself and what you should accomplish. The root of it, God's Word says, is evil. Because you believe that you should be a person who's always in control. But you're a mist. You're dust. You may have done well in your life, and you may have overcome challenges, and you may have many successes, and you begin to think subconsciously, perhaps, that you have somehow evolved into a slightly better person than kind of the average human. Because you have not grown, grown weary. Maybe you are, like at, you, you are always at the front. You're always succeeding. You're always winning. You're always pushing th through new thresholds and accomplishing new things. And you're proud of yourself. And others are praising you for those things. You've accomplished great things. And your fellow humans need the grace of God and their weekly rest, the poor mortals that they are, 
But you don't need that. You don't need that rest. You don't need to know that you are dust. You don't need to give even a second thought to it because it hurts your own ambitions. And so it becomes a habit in your life that you forget God in the midst of your everyday life and you keep pushing. You keep pushing on. You keep planning. You keep putting things on your calendar and you keep attending and you're present, but God is nowhere a part of it. Some of you have no trouble knowing your limits. Some of you might say, man, I get all this, and this is, that's kind of the motto of my life. I'm, I am dust, I know I'm lit- limited, and that's why I don't commit to anything. That's why I am just honoring God by never doing anything ever. <laughs> the pa- this passage calls that evil as well. And it calls it actually something even more specific. It says it's sin. This passage calls it sin. It is wicked and evil to pretend as if our lives are in our own hands. And likewise, it calls it sin to neglect the responsibilities that God has put before us. A big fear and temptation is that if we begin to lower our guard and say, Okay, God, I'm not in control. You're in control. I'm extending myself too much, and I need to just trust you in that. Then all of a sudden, the fear is that we're going to be irresponsible with our lives, that we are going to neglect the the real responsibilities. We're going to fail, and we just don't want to. We don't want to neglect and fail at what God has put before us. We don't want to be lazy. But what happens is when we realize who we are and that we're not in control, the opposite actually happens. Ambition actually increases. A desire to actually honor God and please God and to do the right things that are put before us actually increases. The opposite is true. Look at verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Once we are clear that we are not God, but there is a God who is in control and he has accepted us based on Jesus' perfect record and character, the result of a genuine faith is not laziness. The result is righteous work and a growth in righteousness and a growth in, in ambition. And as we realize, God, I'm not in control, now I'm actually freed up to put my hands and my feet and my heart and my mind into labor that honors you. And we become the best working and hardest working people on the block and in our office and on our floor at our business. We become hardworking people because we are working not for our work, but we're working unto the Lord. We are doing the right thing that is before us because God has freed us from a salvation by work and into a salvation of grace. Our arrogance and our boasting in ourselves fades and godly ambition actually increases when we see ourselves for who we really are. And what is this right? Whoever knows the right thing to do, well, what does it mean? What is the right thing? How do we know the right thing? Well, Micah 6.8 gives us a general guide that we can at least dwell on in the new year. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Is this just? Is it right? Is this good? Is it kind and compassionate? Is it humble before God? Or am I doing this to put myself on a platform, to to pursue my own glory, my own reputation? Am I doing these things to, to control my life, or am I doing it to love God and to love others? It can become a great rubric in which to see our life. 
So how then should we live? How then should we go into the new year? How should we make plans? James says, well, we are to say instead, say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or do that. I love that. How practical. James, can you give me something? What do I do? He says, well, say, if, if the Lord wills, I'll do this or that. Applies to everything, every plan, every ambition. To say Lord willing is not just to sprinkle this phrase or this saying, this superstitious or uh, spiritual phrase at the end of every plan that we have and think that we are then honoring God in it. To say Lord willing is to remember who we are and to remember who God is. James is against arrogance. He's against forgetting. He's for a humble approach to setting goals. He's against pretending that we are more than who we are. He is against performing before God and and comparing ourselves to other people and their successes. He's against attempting to be loved by God according to the good that we can do. He is against living a life where God is not the center of all that we do. Is he the center of of all that you do? Is God at the center of your plans? Is he at the center of your energy? Is he at the center of your planning and your ambitions? Is he at the center of your marriage, your parenting, your your business plans? Is the will of God and what he desires at the center of your life? Who cares what you do if God is not at the center? If you gain the whole world and lose your soul, the Bible says, what profit do you have? If you gain the world but lose your soul, you have nothing. To say if the Lord wills is to look at your life and every part of your life and say, this is because of the grace of God. This is because of the grace of God. If not for the grace of God, I would be dust. You are to take every moment, every decision that you're facing, any trouble, any struggle, any temptation, any discouraging thought, any failure in your life, any compliment that is sent your way, and here is what you are to do. You're to remember in that moment you stand because of the grace of God. You are to remember at that moment to remind yourself that you are breathing because of the gift and grace of God. You have not returned to dust at that moment, but have been sustained by the grace of God. You have not been carried along into thin air and dissipated into nothingness because of the grace of God. At any moment that you are facing right now, we are to remember that you are here. And this has come to you because God is good and gracious. And it's not all about you and it's not in your hands. In the midst of a sobering reminder that we are not in control, there is this invitation to delight in God. And that is why we shouldn't end with just this talking about, well, we're dust and to, we came from dust and we'll return to dust. But in the midst of this, there is great invitation to be joyful and to be excited. Let me show you this amazing invitation to delight in God. When we pretend that we are more in control than we actually are and we forget that God is in control, we will always be under pressure. I don't need to convince you of that. When our joy in life comes from what we succeed in or what we produce and what we accomplish or how well people think of us, you will spend your life under pressure. Worrying about what people think of you, worrying about how well you did, 
wor worrying about uh, what you can accomplish or produce. You will spend your whole life under this burden of, of under a microscope of everybody else's eyes and you will be under pressure forever. We are only as good as our last sermon preached. We're only as good as the last spoken word to our children. We're only as good as our last sales pitch or presentation. If we are at the center of it all, then we will always feel the pressure to succeed according to the broken world's definition of it. We lose sleep. We lose friendship. We lose intimacy with our spouse. We lose, we, we, we lose it all because we can't stop thinking about the pressure of being all things to all people. And here's where the invitation to the light comes in. Say instead, if the Lord wills, we will live or do this or do that. We are invited to make our joy in something other than ourselves. Don't say this is what you're going to do and base your life based on your ability to control a situation. Say this instead, if the Lord wills. And so what you're doing is you are taking the pressure off of your ability to be all things to all people and to get everything right. And you are then receiving your joy from something outside of yourself. You're receiving your joy from the will of God. You're receiving your joy from the provision of God and his grace. You make your joy rooted in something outside of yourself, God's plan for you and his grace in your life. You and I ought to enjoy ourselves in life in the deepest sense. And the only way to do it is become a people who know that we are limited and to know that God and His power is good and to find rest in Him. You and I are deeply joyful people when we are abiding in this reality that it's not about us and God is good and it's all about Him. He is God and I am not and that is okay and it's actually good because He's awesome. He's wonderful. He sustains me by his grace. He doesn't demand perfection. He knows my limits. And he invites me into his rest. Christians ought to be among the most delightful, joyful, unhindered people in the whole world. There's something that we have that can't be touched by any outside circumstance, and that's the will of God. There is something that you and I cannot touch, that we cannot thwart, that we cannot hinder. God has made that very clear. He has said, I will do what I want to do. And if I want to do it, it's going to happen. And my will will not be changed or thwarted and no one will get in the way of it. And that's really good. It's a really good thing if we're in God's will. If we're in Christ and entrusting in Him, then we are secure in His plan. There's no better place where we see the will of God than at the cross of Jesus. Jesus himself said on the night that he was betrayed and arrested awaiting his crucifixion, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, this death from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And on the cross, we see the demand for perfection satisfied, and we see God's punishment for our sins satisfied. This is God's will. This is God's will that his demand for perfection would fall on Christ. That the punishment for our failure to obey God's will in all of his word falls on Christ and that Christ's sacrifice would satisfy God's demand for perfection. And that when we trust in Jesus and believe in him, by faith, that righteousness, that goodness, that perfection is credited to us and God looks upon us as his favored children, and it is God's will that Jesus would take that 
for us that he would die in our place. It is God's will that the weight of the world would not fall on us, but fall on Christ. And Jesus did it, and he did it perfectly, and he rose from the grave in triumph to give us peace and rest so that every day of our life we would walk in, in delight and joy, putting our hands and our feet and our minds into great work for his glory. You see, this is not a sermon against hard work. It's not a sermon against ambition. You can work hard. You can make plans. You can set and reach goals, and I hope you'll do that in the new year. But, you will never, but if you never reach another goal, because of God's grace, your name is still written in heaven. If you never reach that weight that you're looking for or get that job or, or uh, read the Bible in a year, I don't understand why people put themselves through such misery. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to do it, and if I miss reading that section in Deuteronomy, then God won't love me anymore. No, you can miss it. It's okay. You can miss it. You can skip a day. You can delight in God's grace for you. If you never reach any of your goals again, your name is still written in heaven. What have you lost? Absolutely nothing. Because Jesus was forgotten, he was slain, and he triumphed over sin for you. If you're bored in life, then you have forgotten grace. You're not dust yet. If you've eaten up by failure, then you have forgotten grace. If you go about your day making plans without remembering who you are and who God is, then you have forgotten grace. You don't hold yourself up. God holds you up. So you can go about your life knowing that you are in his hands. So hear this. When we become people who are not eaten up by work and productivity and failure or an endless pursuit of success, we give one of the most compelling witnesses to the world that we worship God who desires our collective joy and good. We give concrete expression to an authentic faith that is working to deflate the anxious and destructive pride that supposes we have to do it all, to be it all, all by ourselves through our own effort. But we trust in God. We rest in Him. Make your resolutions. Set new plans. Ask God for forgiveness for your sins. Go into the new year with His breath of life in your lungs and His grace in your heart, knowing that your name is written in heaven and nothing can take that away. Let's pray.